You've never heard of basted eggs? No. What so are they? This, so then um, you, you got a cast iron skillet. Okay. I suppose, you know, here at the restaurant they might do it a little bit differently. But then um, they, uh, uh, so I know that when I make them in a cast iron skillet, the way my granddad made them in a cast iron skillet is that um, you'll heat the skillet up, um, you'll uh, drop the eggs in. Well, first put, you know, salt and pepper in the bottom of the pan. You drop the eggs in. And then uh, you have a lid, and I have a glass lid for my cast iron pan, and then you put a little bit of uh, water in the lid, and then you put the water in the pan, and you put the lid on. Um, and then uh, it gets all steamy in there, and then um, lots of times I just turn the heat off at that point. And then um, when, the, when the tops have uh, filmed over with, with white, like the, the would sort of been clear, and mm-hmm. then uh, the yolks kind of get a little yellowish, then, then I, it's ready. Perfect. So um, that's a that's a basic egg, and um, that's the way my granddad generally made eggs. And so I don't know if that's the way I I still eat eggs. I'll have to try it sometime. I I remember one time going with my granddad to visit a friend, and when I mean a, a friend, it was um, you know it was this woman who was as old as him, <laughs> <laughs> and and I kind of got the feeling that he was flirting with her. <laughs> and, and uh, and then uh, the woman asked me. She says, uh, she says, how do you want your eggs cooked? And and my granddad stepped in to answer her question on my behalf. He'll take them cooked <laughs> any way that's most convenient for you. And and it's like the the end. And and so I just kind of you know nodded my head. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> as a good grandson should. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, my childhood was weird, and my granddad was just super awesome so it's like yeah. whatever he says goes yeah. and I was totally cool with that because cool. he was great so it's like uh, if he says I'll take him cooked <laughs> that's the way I'm taking him and so um, and she tried to pry out of me an answer anyway but I was like nope, nope. I heard that was, you heard the man I'm yeah. <laughs> buttoning up yeah. and uh, not that I even know what Different kinds of eggs were at that time. <laughs> it's like, I'll take them basted. They just they just show up this way, and, and so yeah. But basted is the way Granda did it. But it's that. rare. And and my and I I want to go out to uh, breakfast with my cousin who also lived with Granda for a while, and then then he also always gets them basted because you know Granda was a great guy. Yeah. All right, so we're going to make a podcast about um, Joel Salatin. Okay. And we're in we're in Moscow, Idaho which was something that Joel really struggled with because he wanted to call it Moscow. Which I also am guilty of, and my whole family. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we've now, been uh, corrected quite a few times. You know, whenever I think of the city in Russia, I still think of Moscow. Do they pronounce, do they pronounce it differently? Maybe it's... Uh, we always pronounce it Moscow. Okay. So... Moscow. Okay. Moscow. I, but, yeah, here it's Moscow. Right. It's always... Duh. <laughs> <laughs> and I will never pronounce it the wrong way again. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> and then we were uh, we were just talking about how um, uh, punctuality here isn't uh, isn't an important thing. Apparently, oh. seems like when you say you need to be somewhere at a certain time, there's about a 15 minute leeway, either way, and uh, most of the time it's to the late side. So. Yeah, I, I kind of struggle <laughs> with that myself. I, I know Me that too. there were a couple of times where, I mean, when I give a presentation, I kind of feel like I like the idea that uh, I like the early birds. And so I I usually, like, uh, you know, five, ten minutes before the presentation starts, I say, okay, hey, does anybody want to do some early bird Q&A, just whatever topic? Right. And and we'll just start, you know, some talk, and then while well, the rest of the people kind of come in. but. But then when it's, you know, time to start, I like to start, you know. And then and then there's always, like, the, the, the people that are um, managing the show. Oh, well, let's give the, the, the people that are drifting in a little bit more time to show up. Mm-hmm. And, and my response is, is is that, no, that's disrespecting the folks that got here on time. Right. And so um, they're going to miss some of this. And, and, and a lot of times my presentations, it's like, oh, for two hours, it's like we always end up running, you know, over. Right. And so um, it's like, no, we've got to start now because there's so much to talk about. Right. So Joel ended up being that way, too. He was very punctual and wanted to start right on time. So that was something I noticed with him as well. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, he ended up starting uh, late. Uh, at least in for the evening thing. Yeah, about um, yeah, because they were like trying to like you know whatever, and and then uh, so um, um, but uh, you know good crowds and um, that was a, a much larger turnout than the uh, 
people who put it on per, uh, expected, which is always a good thing. Um, gave them the opportunity to, you know, really be put themselves out there with the community and, and put something pretty great together. So that was really kind of great. So um, how the what the four, the what the format was, which I've, I've decided I don't want to do this ever again, <laughs> is that uh, let's see, they had me out and then I spoke all day long, and um, and then we got to have a dinner break. And then um, I speak again uh, in the evening for two hours, and so um, and it turns out that that's that's not a great recipe. Um, Makes for a long day, definitely ooh. for both um, presenters and even students. I mean, I had a hard time sitting in a chair for that long. I couldn't imagine standing up or speaking or. <laughs> I, I didn't have a problem with the standing up part. It right. was the, it was the um, you know being heard you know like like projecting you know talk yeah. like you know, and and so I'm a blabbermouth but still it's like <laughs> yeah you did a good job <laughs> yeah, blabbering yeah <laughs> um, <clears throat> so uh, um, I think that the the key is is like let's let's talk about the things that uh, that, that Joel talked about and so. Um, uh, it's morning. We're having. We're trying to get some breakfast put together and um, at a restaurant. And uh, um, last night we thought, oh, we'll make a podcast. Last night, and we sat down to take notes. Like, okay, what are the things we want to put in the podcast? And then that ran a bit long. Uh, <laughs> and and it's like, uh, okay, what what a list. This is this is going to take a while. Um, Let's do it. All right. I wanted to start off with the one number one thing that I remembered out of the whole thing is that he's got a new book coming out uh, this September. And um, it's going to be all about, um, uh, I, I can't remember what he's going to call it, but it's all about uh, how he knows all these old curmudgeon farmers. Yeah. And uh, what did you call them? Hermit curmudgeon. Hermit curmudgeon farmers. Hermit curmudgeon farmers. Right. It kind of reminds me of uh, uh, Garrison Keillor's Norwegian bachelor farmers, where their uh, their code word is telwitja. <laughs> really? Well, yeah. They, apparently, they sit around the benches in the town and they and they uh, this is this is what they say over and over again. Tell what you. I've so, uh, <laughs> never heard that one. You've never heard of uh, no. Garrison Keeter's Prairie Home Companion? Um, no. He's got the stories from Lake Wobegon. <laughs> no. No. Okay. All right. Well, it's in Minnesota. It's be on the short list now, I guess. Okay. So that's in Minnesota. <laughs> so so in Minnesota, he's got the Norwegian bachelor farmers. Right. And apparently in Virginia, you must have the uh, the the curmudgeon hermit farmers. Right. Right. So. Um, but anyway, uh, Joel's, Joel's great passion is that he wants to try and connect the the uh, curmudgeon hermit farmers mm -hmm. farmers with um, uh, the the young farmers, the up and coming. Because Joel's really worried about how the average age of the farmer in the United States is currently at 60, and uh, he also pointed out that Japan, the current the average age of farmers in Japan is 70. Right. Um, and I'm not sure if that's just because they live longer over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he's, he is very concerned about the, the vacuum of farmers in the middle. This thing is huge. That's my phone. <laughs> you know what's the biggest feature about this phone? Is that they said... It's size? They said, they said, this phone is not for people with little hands. <laughs> yeah, wow. If you have little hands, do not buy this phone. And I said, that's my phone. It's almost the size of an iPad mini. It's it's a it's a big thing. I I, I like it. Um, it's uh, although it turns out I bought it because I was going to do all this uh, video camera work with it because the video in it's supposed to be so good. But and in fact, <laughs> in fact, parts large portions of the uh, the new footage for the Rocket Mass Heater DVDs was done with this. And it, and in hindsight, not that not that good. Oh, <laughs> so. Um, uh, I'm 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 still like uh, not doing well here. But anyways, so um, yeah, there is a, a large discrepancy in age that he is concerned about, and so with that in mind, he wrote a book for not only um, the hermit curmudgeon farmers, but one that can speak to younger farmers who are um, making their way up the ranks, so to speak and wanting to farm, but maybe having a hard time finding a place to do it or someone to teach them. And and although he didn't elaborate terribly into what the book's going to be about, it seems like it's almost two books in one where he's talking to the youth in the farming community and also 
the hermit curmudgeon farmer. Well, I, th- I think the reason why he didn't go into a lot of detail on it is because what he has to say could fill a book. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and it's like, it. and you've got like, you know, 10 minutes to kind of mm-hmm. cover this topic. You're right. Yeah. And then you've got to move on to the next topic. Right. But um, I, I do think, I mean, I, I get a lot of this. I've got, uh, you know, some permaculture people that are like some of the, some of the people that are well-known in the permaculture community. And they're in their 70s, and they're worried they're going to die, and that their ungrateful family or mm-hmm. the government is going to end up with their land when they're dead, and they just think that is a terrible waste. And um, you know, surely it can go to somebody who is cool and awesome, and and then you know the mission that they started will continue. And <clears throat> so, I mean, we've we've tried to to get some of that stuff going and and making those connections, but. You know, it's the same story that Joel struggles with. Oh, here's our food. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And uh, it's the same stuff that that Joel's struggling with, and and he's hearing from people in both camps too. And so the problem is, is that uh, the the convergent farmers are like, okay, I want somebody to come along. I want some young back to come mm-hmm. along because I'm too old to do all the things I used to do. Who will be my servant? And will be perfect in every way, right? And um, and not give me any lip, and just do exactly what I tell them to do. And then plus, I also need them to read my mind, <laughs> and um, and 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 know in advance how I want them to right. do it. I mean, this is this is the expectation level, right. the current. And I think the book is going to be like, okay, that expectation is not okay. That's not going to work. Right, but at the same time, there's also, he spoke about the expectation level of the younger people who yes. are expecting to show up, work a week, and have the farm handed to them. And, yeah. and that's not true. And, and he spoke oh, a little bit. Oh, it's worse than that. It's worse than that. They <laughs> want the curmudgeon to get the fuck out of the way. <laughs> just move on. Just, just die already or, uh, or, or, you know, just go hide in a box mm-hmm. uh, or, or something like that. I got it from here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I've, I've, and at the same time, by the way, you need to train me <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> in all these things about your land. But I'm not doing it your way because your way is stupid. Right. And um, I need to do it the the better way, which I don't even know what that is yet. Right. And yeah. So, so there's these weird expectations on both sides because, of course, when you're um, when you're 16 or so, you're all knowing, and and those old seven uh, uh, year old geezers. They don't know anything, right? You know, um, other than the fact that they've been farming for. And part of it is is exactly that. I mean, this is a big part of what Joel's presentations are about. These these old curmudgeon farmers, um, they they um, fed the commodity engine, and so <clears throat> they had this lifelong poverty. And so then uh, it's like, boy, can't why can't I find somebody to continue this line of poverty? Right. <laughs> and and uh, you know, there's a lot of truth to what he said when he spoke about you having to. Uh, have a rite of passage there, and and some of that is sleeping with the hens at night so the fox doesn't get them. You know those small little examples that he gave to show that you really do have to endure yourself and and commit to this area. And then maybe it's okay. You are going to have to learn how to monocrop farm for a while, but maybe there is something on the edge or a two-acre parcel over here that you could say, can I use this? And you know when appropriate, and and can I keep the earnings off of it or something? And and then maybe you simply or slowly grow out from there. This is how the uh, the rural mafia works. We threaten people that they're going to sleep with the chickens. <laughs> <clears throat> um, is that it? Or maybe it's maybe it's like the cow tipping thing, you know. <laughs> um, but I think what what Joel was trying to say was is that. Um, and I, I imagine that most of the book is going to be written towards the, the younger folk who will read a book. Right. I mean, he was talking about how a lot of the old curmudgeons, they're just not going to read it because they don't care. They're curmudgeons. Right. And then um, at the same time, he was also pointing out that a lot of them can't read. Like, they never learned how to read. Right. And So he's hoping that that book ends up on their coffee table or bedside table by way of their children who who might be 50 or 40 and who are concerned about those things for their parents. Right, right. <clears throat> so I imagine a lot of the book is going to be geared towards these younger people. And 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 that Joel's point was is um you're you know if if you're going to inherit land, um, there's there's a few important points. One is is that um, you're going to show up, you're going to do a lot of hard work, and it's going to be not the kind of hard work you want to do. I mean, he's probably he might even ask you to go in the spray, mm-hmm. and um, 
And it's like, uh, and you're not gonna, you're gonna do it. And for, after two years, there's still no guarantee you're gonna inherit the land. Right. And um, in fact, probably won't because you know he's a curmudgeon. He's gonna hate you. <laughs> um, however, it could turn into some sort of uh, Disney movie, and he falls in love <laughs> with you or something, you know, and then and then dies and gives you the land. Uh, it'll it'll kind of be like right. a, a, a Clint, the Clint Eastwood movie Grand Torino, but you know, <laughs> with with land <laughs> instead of a car. Yeah. But, um, Hopefully less violent. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, you know, rural stuff can be weird. Oh, and by the way, we should say that while we're in the panhandle of Idaho, right. that you know, there are a lot of. Um, uh, I mean, we, there's there's all the funny stuff that ends up in the news. Well, not funny, actually, it's pretty pretty horrible. Yeah. Um, and this is where they had uh, Hayden Lake years ago, mm-hmm. and they had that. Uh, um, well, whatever that was. I mean, there's this, there's some of this Aryan element around, but right. but um, between Moscow and Sandpoint and Bonners Ferry, I mean, it's kind of like there's there's some spots where that are really cool. And, right. and uh, the farmers market. Joel and I went to the farmers market on Saturday, and um, it was very vibrant and nice. And so um, yeah, it's I, been I, nice coming from uh, the greater Sacramento, California area all the way up here for my first time. I was. You know, you have preconceived notions about how the um, this area might be, and pleasantly surprised with not only diversity but how nice the people are. My wife has mentioned more than one time how how nice everybody has been up here. So, so you guys been, were a little spooked. You thought, I don't know, if spooks the right word, but you know, preconceived notions of what may be. And I think what may be is out there. Um, it's just not right here. Um, it, I mean. Uh, um, I think Moscow's gotten to be a, um, a well-known little um, uh, organic mecca in the middle of um, uh, you know all these rolling hills, and and I don't know. There's 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 um, all kinds of different flavors of towns out here, and um, you know some are some are um, uh, ickier than others, I guess. Um, and it depends on on what you're into, I suppose. But but yeah, there's there can be uh, you get rural enough, and I suppose things can be a little nutty. Yeah. Well, th- it's been great here. So. All right. So um, <clears throat> on the curmudgeon uh, uh, stuff, I, I I think that that is an important thing. I think that that book will really be a big improvement for the world. And um, I think that uh, it's possible that if a guy wants, if a, if a guy's a curmudgeon and he's like, I'm, I want to get somebody in here and keep this farm going, I can't keep it going anymore, um, he might be willing to embrace some change um, in, in order to, and one of the things that, that Joel said was maybe the, maybe the arrangement can be that, you know, some guy's got like 40 acres or 100 acres or something like that, and it's like, okay, this five-acre chunk we're going to slice off, and the youngster can, can have a go at it. And uh, right. the youngster will, will live in a tent out there, and the youngster's on his, on his own, and we'll see how things go. And, um, and in exchange for that, then the, the youngster's going to come out and be a servant 10 hours a week or something like that just for rent on that five acres. And then uh, and we'll you know see how see how things um, roll along. I know that with Mike Ayler and and uh, he's he's looking for people to come out to his land and um, and it's like he's he's kind of you know he's he's being a little curmudgeonly and and uh, which I think you know he's earned the right mm-hmm. and um, he's looking for somebody to kind of take over you know he he's worried he's going to die any time now and then what's going to happen to all of the the um buildings that he's created that are up on his land who's going to keep making sure that these books go out i mean are, are the books just going to end and they're just not available anymore um and so somebody's got to keep you know putting the books in little boxes and sending them out right and um so uh um and so he's he likes the idea of having several people come up and he's already divided his land into nine pieces um, so that way he can will it to like nine different people or, you know, five pieces to one person and four pieces to another or whatever. And and he's totally open to this idea and, and he, he has admitted that, you know, he's he's kind of, you know, locked in his ways and, and he's he's he is gonna have some high expectations and stuff. But at the same time he's going yeah. to like try to um you know uh um work with, with folks and but he wants, you know, he wants people that are going to come out and work hard, not just for him, but for themselves, and and are going to have some passion in what they're doing. Right, and, and even if it doesn't end up in you 
getting land. And in the end, you know, it was mentioned that you are walking away with a ton of experience. Um, and so that might be of, of value in and of itself. It doesn't have to be that you end up, you know, you can't go into it thinking, I'm going to end up with this 40, 400, or 4,000 acres at the end because that may not be realistic. Joel kept pointing out, like, what's a year, you know? And of course, yeah, that was good. That's, yeah. That, and that's true. When you're 20, a year is like eternity. But but when you're 70, a, a year is like... Um, right, um, or two. And, and he did say that, you know, and the older I get, the more I realize, gosh, two years at, at 20 or three years at 20 for uh, the benefits that may come from that is, is a blink of an eye. So. All right. Um, I think the, the next thing I wrote down is that uh, on the morning that um, uh, I was driving Joel, I was like his driver, and so I'm, I'm, I'm driving Joel in. Um, I asked him about going hayless mm-hmm. while we're driving in. And uh, we stayed in a funky little house. It's, it's like uh, a house is like 110 years old, right? And it's like somebody, some farmer, out on the prairie built this house, and um, I think he must have whoever this person is that built this house must have been a teeny tiny person. <laughs> you mentioned many times how you had to turn sideways to even walk up the stairs or the hallway. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was not built for a guy my size, and. Um, and I had to duck at the top because you know there's the roof, <laughs> and um, but but it was, were your it was feet cool. and arms hanging over the beds? No, no, they were normal things, <laughs> normal beds. Um, I, I, I the house is really cool. So whoever yeah. whoever has that house, I did mean, they have some nice eclectic artwork throughout, or, it, it, or it's, it's different? It was it was definitely um, a cool funky decoration kind of thing yeah. going on, and it's like uh, and the fridge was appropriately covered and awesome. Right. And um, that was that was. I mean, that fridge, that refrigerator is is probably modifying compasses throughout <laughs> Idaho. There's so many magnets. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it was it was amazing. And um, anyway, it was really cool. I mean, cool. It, it's it's pretty obvious that this is, uh, you know, that these are people that are not uh, materialist folks, but they've picked up a couple of funky things. And it's not like, oh, here's a million dollar portrait of something. But it was it was just fun. It was cool. Um, and so I'm glad to have uh, gotten a free place to stay while I'm down here. Uh, and then and they they asked me that like, okay, we could get, get you a bed and breakfast or something. And I said, oh, I'd rather stay at somebody's Which is awesome. house. Yeah, so it was it worked out yeah. it worked out good. Um, and and the, it turned out the people weren't there. Um, I that was odd. <laughs> right. But it was fine. You know, everything worked out. So like Joel and I are driving into town because uh, it's a two bedroom place. I got one bedroom. Joel got the other one. And we had and the house for ourselves. Chaz was out in the orchard in a hammock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, um, uh, and, uh, and I think one morning we had some awesome lightning storms right. and rain. And the weather I, was here was, has been so weird. You know, we pulled in from California and we left and it was about 95 to 100 degrees. We get here and it's raining and, um, you know, not cold, but, but cool. And today I think it's supposed to be 98 degrees a week later. So we've had northern lights, thunderstorms, rain on and off and uh, now we're hot so yeah fun. experience the four seasons sometimes <laughs> all in one day exactly um and so i uh, one morning we had like some big boomers you know some, mm-hmm. some power some power storms and uh i mean just just massive lightning and and uh and and thunder so i got up and uh went out in the front porch because that's what you do in a house like this and there was jazz it's like oh yeah if you're sleeping out in the orchard a down a downpour, uh, you know, if you're just in the hammock out in the orchard, downpour <laughs> might not work well with yeah. that. So he was in the porch. Trooper. Just, yeah, and he was just he was just basking in the glow of the storm. He just thought it was amazing, you know. But all right, so I I got to visit with, and I suggested the halos. I said, you know, Joel, have you done the experimentation with going halos? Mm-hmm. And he said that um, that in his area he thinks halos is not possible. Um, He's been able to, I mean, most people um, feed hay 120 days out right. of the year. And um, and he's managed to get that down to 40, which I think was the same as what he's written about in his books. Right. And so um, uh, he, he keeps enough hay for uh, two years. Which I found to be amazing. I just, when he was showing pictures with the amounts of hay that he, that he puts up, I mean, it seemed tremendous. So I, I couldn't imagine having to store hay 
for my four cattle for two years, and he's doing it for, I don't know if the full thousand in one spot for two years, but he has a ton of hay. So, Well, I'm probably more than a ton. <laughs> I imagine tons. Literally. Tons <laughs> of hay. Yeah, it's a lot, though. Um, I, I w- wasn't quite sure if he grows it all on on site. Yeah, he's very particular about mm-hmm. the quality of his hay. And then he has, because he doesn't want to do it himself, he doesn't want to invest in the machinery, which he spoke to a lot, and I'm sure we'll get to, but he has a neighbor who likes to, you know, cut and bale hay, and, and they work something out, and it ends up being cheaper for him to have someone come in and do it than, have, than him himself own the machinery, maintain the machinery, run the machinery, and, and do it. So working with, you know, his neighbors to get that all put together. He went into some detail about why he believed Halis would not work for him. And now I feel like I want to take that information and um, press it to Owen Hablitzel, who I recorded. Who I'm excited to see on Tuesday. Maybe you can ask him that question. I mean, I'll be gone because he'll be here tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But I have to get back to the farm today. And so, um, uh, but yeah, uh, I'm, and then, and then after Owen's done, uh, he's going to come out to my place, cool. and and uh, I'll I'll hit him with it then. Maybe make a podcast. But all right, <clears throat> um, um, moving along. Uh, my next uh, note I have. Oh, oh, right. This is a good one. Um, so so when the uh, when the the people move into his neighborhood, and they buy a few acres, and they're like farmer wannabes, like oh, we're gonna. And and so one of the things that they do is that uh, they they get their ten acres and this is where our farm is going to be, and then they spend four hundred thousand dollars on a house <laughs> and um, and equipment and uh, you know putting all this infrastructure in, and he, he was he was saying how the older neighbors the hermit curmudgeons get mad and uh, try to discourage them and try to discourage them and he's thinking get them to leave somehow like right. oh we don't need your kind around yeah right and he's thinking the whole time that. That this is going to be an asset instead of a liability. Yeah, his his experience is is that these guys show up and they're like, "I'm going to be a farmer," mm-hmm. and then they take all their money and all their credit, <laughs> and they go massively into debt, buying um, all kinds of tractors and and enormous houses and and uh, a, a forty five thousand dollar pickup truck, and then. <clears throat> Um, they come to Joel for food because <laughs> you know they have standards, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so Joel's like, "No, no, come on in, <laughs> live yeah. over here by me." Yeah, pigs don't raise themselves, right? So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So um, it's because you know they, this farming thing turns out to be a, a bit more challenging than they originally mm-hmm. thought. It is actually hard work. So, yeah, that was interesting. So. <clears throat> Um, uh, Joel, Joel says that um, you know he wants to encourage people to come in, encourage people to move in, encourage farmers to come to his area, and I guess compete with the local farmers. But instead of farming, and, and he farms them. That's a good point. He does. He farms them. Right. And he thinks it's great marketing. Welcome wagon. Hey, <laughs> come on down, man. Yeah. Constant supply of money that's close, so you don't have to ship anything. They actually come to you. I, I, I do think it's a good point though to to, to consider for a moment. When he says this, how many people are of the position of, I'm going to be a farmer, and right. then they never grow a damn thing, right. or they never do any kind of farming. And, and it's kind of like, um, you know, I, I'll bet you that probably 90, 95% of people who are coming and they buy the land and they move on to it, that they just never end up farming. And so Joel's, you know, saying, you know what, if you're a real farmer, here's what you do, is you buy your 10 acres, and then you live in a tenth the first year. Right. He, d- he did mention that you don't spend as much money on infrastructure as, you know, and that's what you're getting at, essentially, when you when you talk about paying for a house that's $400,000 and buying tractors and all these other things, is you're investing in, in, in infrastructure before you're actually seeing a return on your land. Where Right. So those are some really important points, I think, that he made is for some reason everybody has this preconceived notion that they need to have the all this infrastructure before they actually are um, seeing a return on their investment with their property and their farm. So we've got some more notes on that in a little bit. <clears throat> um, but for now, uh, the next thing I want to talk about is um, when I had a private 
moment with him. Uh, I think I was we were driving back uh, mm-hmm. for his presentation uh, from dinner, and um, and and it seems like he he uses the word permaculture a lot. Yeah, it was pretty. I, I didn't know if he was playing to the crowd or. I think he's playing to the okay. crowd because that's the name of the event. It's a permaculture right. event. Right, right, right. right. But uh, he did use it quite a bit and, and mentioned it, and it seems like he's pretty knowledgeable about um, what it is exactly that is permaculture. And and so I kind of asked him a little bit about you know <clears throat> uh, um, you know permaculture and and he, he basically expressed that he has a concern that um, too many people in the permaculture community are um, and and I can't remember what what word that he used but uh, in fact I think he was struggling for a word and I said woo woo <laughs> he says purple he says so he doesn't know about purple but okay. he says he says woo woo I mm-hmm. said I said I offered woo woo and he mm-hmm. said yeah that and it's like so it doesn't. It seems like there's a lot of talk and not a lot of do, and it seems a lot about like, you know, some sort of spiritual thing with the earth, and and not a lot of like, you know, let's let's plant some, you know, let's grow some food, and and um, and let's let's make, and then a lot of it's like destined for uh, um, poverty. Like you're not gonna, and you're not gonna be able to sustain yourself. It's it's like a, a recipe for failure. And um, um, and it's not because of the permaculture techniques. It has to do with you know like we're we're committed to poverty, and and then it's like after a while people kind of get tired of poverty, and then <laughs> and they're like, well, I'm going to flush this poverty package. And um, <clears throat> so I told them that you know um, I'm I'm hoping to you know help people to find a way to make permaculture be profitable, and and so therefore it's sustainable, and they'll continue to do it. Um, so I don't know he and I talked at great length about a lot of permaculture techniques, and so in fact, ooh, ooh, on on the on the on our first day, well, actually, I only I only spent one day with him. Man, that was a long day. Right. Um, so at breakfast, when I was when I when I took him out to breakfast, then um, he said, "I need you to tell me more about hugel culture." And then first, actually, the way you presented Did your it, eyes light up? He said, he says, I need you to tell me more about that thing where it's got the wood <laughs> and there's dirt on it, and I can't remember the word for it. And um, and so I said, do you mean hugel culture? Yeah, that, that. Uh-huh. So then he had a whole bunch of questions. So then I'm pulling out the little the little milk things, which we don't have at this restaurant, mm-hmm. and I'm stacking them up, and I'm saying, okay, here's your hugel culture bed. And he's like, well, where do you get the where do you get the dirt? And and I said, oh, from right next to it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you'll have, like, this depression next to it, and you'll pile it up, and... And um, so anyway, I'm kind of, uh, and and I, so I said, uh, and now I'm going to put this on my resume that I taught Hugel culture to Joel Salatin. Yeah. <laughs> it would it would be funny to see if any of that starts showing up on his property. That would be, but but he and I had a lot of conversations about a lot of different permaculture techniques that he might want to try. Well, wouldn't that be and, great? And uh, <laughs> I mean, he is. Um, he is a, a harsh judge of, of techniques, mm-hmm. and, and we're going to get into a lot of that in a little bit. But but I it does seem to me, you know, he said privately to me, not in the public thing. He said privately to me, and I probably shouldn't share it, but that he was concerned that um, permaculture was like not getting traction because of the woo-woo factor. And um, <clears throat> I told him I'm trying to I'm trying to mend that myself. Right. And mm-hmm. I tried to tell him that you know I I think it's it's a it's a broad umbrella, and so we can have our woo-woo people, and we can also have our people that are, you know, the farmers. Um, uh, I told him the thing about uh, how if I go out and visit a farmer, and I talk about some techniques to make more money, which is what Salatins does. Salatins all about, like, make more money. And um, and the, the farmer's, like, doing good is what he called us. And if I, say, if I say permaculture, then the farmer says, I'm not going to make any more money blowing rainbows out my ass. Get the fuck <laughs> off my land. And so um, Salatin was like, yeah, that's exactly mm-hmm. it. That's that, that. So, um, all right, moving along. Um, Joel Salatin's current, speaking of income, current marketing stuff. So a lot of this is about marketing. A great portion of his presentation was uh, geared towards uh, marketing, uh, economics, you know, and the, and, and the processes of of, of making a business out of your farm and and that was interesting so uh to to hear him talk about how much of you know and i don't what are the numbers there you know he said he has his three his three different three different ways you know before i go any further i should say by the way joining me today is garrett (laughs) from california (laughs) drove a long ways to be here um 
And uh, um, sure. Garrett, if you want, you can take this moment to say a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, uh, yeah, we drove here, up hold here. Hold this, and I'll eat some eggs. There you go. Uh, we drove up here from California, uh, greater Sacramento area, uh, wife and two kids. Uh, we just graduated our own PDC and uh, was looking for some ways to further our kind of permaculture education, so we came up here for this two-week intensive, and it's it's been a good experience so far between uh, you and your presentations and Joel, and then now we're going to get to see Owen and and also the uh, opportunities to sit and hear a lot of these doctors of veterinary medicine and everything else who may not be exactly permaculture, but, you know, you can separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, and take what you want out of their presentations and, and apply it towards what you want. But I think I think your family loves me. Yeah, my daughter was, uh, she thought you le- were leaving yesterday and, and woke up wanting to see Mr. Paul. <laughs> so she missed them. <coughs> So, all right, the marketing thing. Currently, Joel says that he gets 25% of his income from on-farm sales, and they've got a big on-farm store. store it's yeah. pretty massive. It looks like it was pretty big. Yeah, and then four, um, I'm going to say 30%. Uh, I'm not I'm sorry that I'm going to say I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm trying to change up the list here because I want to do this other one last. So 30% from chefs, and mm-hmm. I think we've... We're familiar with his story with, with going to chefs and getting those income streams going. And, I mean, I think that's a pretty obvious one. It is. The one that has been his biggest one, which is now 45% of all of his income, is a buyer's club. I thought the story of how he did that was awesome. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> uh, basically there were, um, what do you say, like these, these four women that would show up once a month at his place and they would buy big gobs of food right like eight hundred dollars at a time yeah he, he said some people would come in and, and and grab a steak or two or a chicken and he said these ladies would come in open up an ice chest and stick their arm to the furthest back part of the refri- or freezer and dump everything into this ice chest and yeah. uh, start emptying yeah. everything yeah and he said i think after about 18 months he had to pull them aside and ask him what was going on and and so, I, I guess the lady um, wasn't she a, a spiritual person or an energy person or something? And he said that she had a pretty big following or, or, or something like that. And anyway, right? She taught some kind of classes somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And she got a ton of people to. Uh, I guess they worked together and eventually started this um, Metropolitan Buyers Club, which is what he called it. And and basically, there's all these little stipulations that you have to go through, but, you know, he said he had tried the farmer's market stuff, and that was too cumbersome. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. But we've got that in the list, too. I think that's a good point. But what this, basically, these ladies, they kept coming and buying more and more and more, and then they had all their friends, and they would, like, you know, so they, they, they would come up, and they would make the big purchase, and they would drive back two hours away, and, um, you know, Handed out to all their friends. Mm-hmm. It all worked out a deal, so that way they wouldn't all have to drive 40 cars down or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so then they called them up once and they said, "Okay, we're coming down, but we got this idea, and maybe um, how can, is there a way that we could convince you to come to us?" And so um, Joel, in an effort to say, "Oh hell no," that's right. Then then he said, "Okay." If you've got $3,000 worth of orders, and she said, done. <laughs> right. Yeah, and he's yeah, like, so. so then he's kind of like, oh, oh, good. I couldn't have said it high enough. <laughs> and so uh, he's like, all right, I said I'd do it. So so he, uh, uh, they told him exactly what they wanted. Mm-hmm. He packaged up exactly what they ordered and not a speck more. And and he goes up there, and then uh, he gets a big fat check. In fact, they sold a whole lot more. I mean, it was mm-hmm. like five or six thousand dollars. And um, and so he drives up there, and he gets a check for like five or six thousand right. dollars. Meet at a host or hostess's house. Yeah, and, and, and everybody's there, and and then yeah, and and then uh, um, he drives home with a perfectly empty truck. Mm-hmm. Unlike the Saturday market where you've got no idea how much you're going to sell and you always drive home with a bunch of stuff. Right. So, um, so we kind of got to thinking like, that was cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was so easy. 
that was dreamy. And so, um, <clears throat> so it, it, it turned out that he kind of started doing this buying club thing. And now apparently he has software so people can go and say, here's what I want when you come up for your drop. Right. So to me, I'm thinking like, oh, this is like Azure Standard. Here, mm-hmm. I don't know. I know Azure Standard does go down to California. I don't know if you use it or not. We don't. Okay. Well, Azure Standard is in Oregon. It comes to Montana. And I think I got my order in for this month already. Cool. Um, and uh, in fact, well, anyway, um, uh, but I know <laughs> a lot of people do it. And they go a long ways, but I know they don't. They definitely don't go as far as Virginia. <laughs> but um, you know, but and there's also like uh, we, we had in, the, in a podcast before we talked about Spud, and that's where uh, where Jocelyn used to live mm-hmm. over in Woodmanville. They had a, a delivery. You would you would go online and you'd say these are the things that I want, and then on um, Friday mornings it would show up at her house. Right, some sort of Zen cart service or or something along those lines. Yeah, is what yeah. So, um, uh, and then, so, yeah, Joel's got a thing where you go online and you say, here are the things that I want. And I think that they do something like six drops. Uh, he did, six times a year. Or yeah. Something like that. And, and he says they open or at a any one, any one right. community. Right. And, and it, there needs to be, in, in that certain area, you know, at least $1,000 worth of um, sales or it, or it doesn't happen again. Um, there's a whole referral program. I thought it was more than 1000 It was. I thought it was like 3000 Oh, okay. And it was like the minimum, and a couple of people dropped below the minimum. And they had to cut them off. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's like, man, you're not meet the minimum. Minimum, so you're out. Right. And uh, but most people, it's like they grow to like forty thousand dollars per drop. Right. And it's like, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> he was very excited about the the future prospects for this type of uh, marketing model and, and how it's going to work with um, uh, farms in the future and and kind of cutting out the middleman, so to speak, and making it just a lot easier for people to um, sell their product uh, off-farm. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was very cool. Um, all right, <clears throat> next note. If someone has done it, it can be done. Oh, right. I, 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 I kind of feel like this is a big part of where we struggle in the world of permaculture, is that um, somebody will go out and do a thing. It's like Fukuoka. This is a great one. So Fukuoka did what Fukuoka did. And then a lot of people, there's a lot of people saying, oh, I can't do that for one reason or another, or, you know, it's impossible, or, or they say that no one's been able to duplicate Fukuoka's work. And I know, I know Helen says that a lot, you know, and I kind of feel like, no, you know what? It's been done. It can be done again. And it's like, just because he was in a different climate and stuff, you know, it doesn't, doesn't make a difference. We can still, it, it can be duplicated right. again. And I don't think it's that tough. In fact, I think that there are people that have duplicated it. And they're just not as well documented. And right, so, and he got into that whole thing with the farm where people would start saying, um, you know, that was a good part of the beginning of his presentation where, oh, Joel, you have this much rain or you have, you know, this much land or, uh, you know, you have this many interns to help you. So um, a big part of his presentation and a major theme in it was, Unfair you know, advantage. Unfair advantage or, you know, good enough is per- you know, isn't perfect, but you can, you know, good enough is perfect, I guess I should say. Yeah, that's where, what he said. Where um, it, it doesn't have to be perfect or, you know, and that if it's been done somewhere else, it can be repeat- repeatable where you're at. I mean, I think he had a couple different points. One is, is that... Um, if you think there's not going to be any challenges, um, then, then yeah, you should give up now. <laughs> you know, and it's like, um, uh, but there's, it's, it's, if you, I, I mean, one thing to throw in that he didn't say is that if you think you can't, you're correct. And, um, uh, but, but his whole thing was is, is that uh, um, if somebody has done it, that means that I can do mm-hmm. it. I just need to figure out how. Right. It's not that it can't be done. It's that it's going to take a lot of innovation. In fact, the word innovation probably occurred about 500 times right. in that one day. Um, so um, innovation is, a, is a, a major component to this. And, you know, I guess some people just feel like they're not innovators. But It did seem like a, a lot of questions that were asked were, I have this with this and I want to get to here. Can you please tell me a roadmap? Yeah. And so hold my hand. Right. And and I think that's a big part of permaculture too. Is it's like that's, there's reasons why these books are so big and why is somebody was saying that they're really frustrated with permaculture because 
they kept they kept hearing about it, and they would try to ask people that were that were even permaculture instructors, as well as you know major permaculture enthusiasts, and then they the, the person would say, you know, they, they would try to they would try to describe permaculture, and it just sounded wishy-washy, right. like there was nothing nothing of substance, and it's like, can you just you know in under a minute describe to me what it is, and um, so it's, it's there's a lot of struggle in, in that space, <clears throat> but I it's it's a big big topic mm-hmm. and and it's hard to condense into one quick little sentence kind of a thing all right um page one <laughs> yeah yeah and, and so in fact one person told me that they were really kind of pissed off because they said well well what is permaculture i keep hearing this word i don't even know what it is i mean i hear people saying it's good mm-hmm. but i i you know what what is it and uh, and the response from a permaculture instructor, this is, and they were telling me that they were really angry to hear this response was, take a PDC, take no more. It was actually take my PDC, mm-hmm. and then you'll know. And I kind of feel like, oh, that's not good. That's that's not cool. Um, I mean, a person. I think a person takes a PDC after they know a fair bit about right. permaculture. I, I would venture to guess that most people who take a PDC have read at least three or four permaculture books. I, w- I would think. Uh, no, it seems like. When, when I took my PDC, I think that um, there may have been only, out of 25 students, I think that there may have been five or six that had read at least half of one book. <laughs> and, oh, no. and and it's like before, and when taking it, 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 there was a thing that was sent out. It says, before showing up, you have to have read these no, five you books. That. And, and it's like just me and one other student had actually done that. Right. And it kind of, but then it, so then the whole the whole thing was taught at the level of the people who had not read any books, and and it's kind of like yeah, uh, that, that's was, hard. I mean, how do you how do you teach to a, a such a diversified level uh, well, of knowledge crowd? So and I think this is when the when the um, um, some of the some of the people that are the pod people have taken a PDC mm-hmm. and they've kind of complained about this, and it's kind of like you know what would be great is to take a PDC that's taught at a level like assuming. But we've read the books right. and listened to the podcasts and stuff like that, and right. and so um, it would be so much easier. I think you know, <laughs> Owen is is um, uh, going to be teaching a PDC right. here pretty soon, it, and I think they're teaching it this week. I think this last two weeks, I thought they were teaching it. No, I think that they start here they start soon. Yeah, yeah, okay. I think, but um, but Owen, I mean, um, I've I've talked to him a great length about you know. Having having something that's a very professional PDC, mm-hmm. and so then that's that's what he's doing. I think he's down in Utah. Yeah, I bet True Nature Farm, nutrient dense. Uh, yeah, <laughs> PDC right there. Yeah, yeah. and and apparently <laughs> the PRI stuff says no woo woo is allowed. You like you cannot it cannot be part of the course. If you advertise with PRI mm-hmm. and as a as a PRI certified instructor, then um, you cannot have any woo woo as part of the course. So um, none of the cult and permaculture, uh, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. It's, so no singing, I mean, no dancing. I, I yeah. Well, right. No no holding hands and singing songs. Um, and it's it's a very formal, very very professional course, which I think some people will be very sad to hear that. They will be probably even hysterically pissed. Um, and at the same time, I think that there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that right. will be like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, I know that, honestly, that was one of the first questions I asked my instructor when I ended up giving her a phone call to see about going to her PDC. It was, do you do the singing and dancing? Is there a talent show? How much of that are you incorporating into your PDC? Without telling her whether or not that's what I wanted, and, and she definitely did mention that, you know, no, I don't think that that is relevant to the the PDC format, and um, it was a little more brown, as you like to say, the whole way okay. through, which which I find a lot of value in. Someone else may not, but I, yeah. I don't. I don't want to hold hands. I, I, you know, I, I just want to make it clear. I think the purple PDCs are awesome and great, and for people that love that kind of thing, I, you know, they will they they will enjoy it. And and then I, I I'm glad that there's also brown PDCs. Right. Where and, and as I move through my permaculture experience and, and continue my uh, education, so to speak, I think that I will take one of those just to uh, a purple one. Yeah, just to just to push myself and see. Oh yeah. Um, out of my comfort zone a little bit, just so that I can. But it, it, there's other things to be done for right now. I think. Yeah. So so it's I you know mine was purple. The, right. the PDC I took was purple. And I didn't know it could be that purple. And I gotta say, I I really I really had a good time. 
You yeah. mentioned that quite a few I, times. Yeah. So um, even though I don't feel like I'm a purple guy at all, yeah. I had a good time. Right. So maybe there is so, some merit. There is definitely merit to it. But oh, but right. when I'm trying to impress permaculture onto other people who are kind of oh, can't start curmudgeonly. There. Yeah, you cannot start there. Yeah, and you, like you're right. It's like, like it's. I'm out of here. <laughs> we love permaculture, and you breathe it, and you like it, and so you want to tell everybody about it. But maybe there's a time and a place, just like you know, a time and a place for particular questions during keynote speaks and uh, you know presentations and stuff like that. But there's a time and a place to bring up permaculture, and maybe talking to the full-time farmer who wears a cowboy hat every day isn't the time when you're walking in the front door. So, uh, right. I- I, you know, I just had a thought. Like, if you're at a purple PDC, and you got you managed to talk a farmer into going there, and then they start wanting to hold hands and things like, "I'm out of here." You could say, "Oh, later, these women will be naked in that hot tub over there." Okay, I'll stay. <laughs> that could be some pluses to to a purple PDC. <laughs> yeah. I hate it and I love it <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, oh, assets are liabilities. Um, Oh, this was this was good. He kept talking about all these all these folks that would go out and they would um, buy a big house, buy a big tractor, buy a big truck, buy 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 a big barn, mm-hmm. um, you know, and all these things, and they don't even know what they're going to do yet, and uh, they don't have a business plan. And he and he said basically assets are liabilities, mm-hmm. and so that is, is what these people have as assets end up becoming liabilities. You end up becoming a slave to your tractor that breaks it down. Or, or your huge mortgage or all these other little different things, your expensive barn that you have to put up or your grain silo or whatever it is that indebt you to this system of farming that really doesn't let you reap the benefits of, of having that lifestyle. Right. You don't, you don't own these things. These things own you. Right. Yeah, and so um, one of the things he said is that you need to be running your tractor. In fact, um, uh, he said somebody else was saying 3,000 hours per year. I think he mentioned Alan Nation. Nation. Yeah, Alan Nation that, that says. That's a lot. I mean, yeah, I was thinking 2,000 yeah. hours a, a year job. is a full-time job. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, you need to be running. In order to justify owning a tractor, you need to run that tractor 3,000 hours per year. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, Joel was saying that, that he wouldn't be so harsh. He would right. say 1,000. Right. Um, but if it's if it's under a thousand, that you shouldn't own that tractor. That's that's just ridiculous. Right. And he gave a lot of examples as to you know why he buys maybe a smaller tractor as opposed to one that can get a job done quicker. But this one has function stacking, so he's able to pull uh, you know a hay ride, and he can load firewood, and then he can go muck out the stalls or whatever needs to be done. Yeah. With this one tractor, instead of having one huge tractor that can get a single job done better. Right, he talked about like um, uh, getting a uh, a knuckle uh, grapple loader, and um, and he was saying you know it would be parked most of the year because they'd only do their logging stuff just yeah, in, the, you in the winter. Can you imagine going a hayride with that tremendously large tractor? Well, you know the knuckle the knuckle loaders are kind of cool. It's like got this big old claw that goes out mm-hmm. and it grabs the tree and picks it up and sets it and stuff. But then you know they're currently just using the the loaders on their tractors mm-hmm. in order to move those logs around. Right. And he says, you know, it doesn't load as fast. It's slower, but you know, uh, uh, we end up being dollars ahead at the end of the year. They can use it throughout the year for multiple different uses. Right. It's a multifunction kind of a thing. And so uh, the other one he said it was you have to keep buildings occupied. If you've got a building that's just sitting empty or mm-hmm. it's just being used as storage, it's it's not earning its keep. And if it's not earning its keep, then it's it's a liability. Right. It's not an asset. So then he said that uh, he went down to was it Australia, mm-hmm. and there's all these guys that are out of the sheep business, but they've got all these sheep barns, and it's like okay, let's let's brainstorm. And so they spent hours coming up, like making massive lists of all right. the different kinds from of things. From everything from canning to having a bed and breakfast in it or, or you know, using it to dry uh, fruits and vegetables or a root cellar, just everything. You know, anything you can imagine coming up with these spaces. But the theme of it was is you need to take these empty spaces and make use of them so that it's not becoming a liability. And... I mean, a building, I mean, it's not like you can, like, oh, okay, this is, uh, I'm going to sell this asset. Right. You know, it's like, yeah, you can't just sell it. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> so got a foundation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It should, it should be getting used, and, and it's like, uh, 
And in, in the evenings, if it's uh, if it's sitting there idling, maybe that's a good time to have some workshops and stuff, some evening right. workshops or something like that, or some sort of evening. Oh, the barn dance once in a while. Yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah. Barn dance. yeah. Um, you can teach people to come out and uh, butcher, uh, you know, chickens or a side of a hog or anything like that. So, right, right. The next thing uh, on here is um, the tractor you don't have never breaks down. Um, and then that kind of reminds me from my software engineering days of the fastest and most reliable algorithm is that which is not there. <laughs> um, and, uh, and of course, that one has to do with feature creep, but still, it's a, it's a similar kind of a thing. You want to you want to have a farm that's lean and clean and efficient. Um, and then, uh, and a part of that is, 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 and I think I've got a note about it somewhere, but he said something like, uh, the average farm has $4 of infrastructure for every dollar of annual income. Right. And his farm has less than 50 cents of infrastructure for every dollar of income. Yeah, and that was interesting. Um, it really uh, shows how... Um, you know how in debt some of these other people are, and, and and his model for not being that way, and that was reoccurring throughout his presentation. Of you know, sometimes you do have to sleep in a tent. Sometimes you will have to rake hay by hand, or or bale it, you know, without the machine, and and uh, that will lead you to prosperity as opposed to everybody thinking they need everything at once. Right. To do it for them. Right, I need all the best equipment, right. you know, and I need all of this and all of that, and right. and uh, um, so and of course you know he builds resiliency in, but it's all he all, he's got a strong focus on the low tech, correct, as opposed to like oh yeah let's get the high tech ultimate gizmo wizardry and we'll use that. Mm -hmm. So and I think I think permaculture is a powerful embracer of low tech. Yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, he also said know when to say no, and and he said. Um, he was giving some examples of how, um, like, like with chopping wood, he, they, they, they park uh, trailers out by the road, and it says uh, something about, you know, you can have this wood for so many dollars per cord. It was $25 a cord, whereas uh, in town or, or throughout his general area, they're selling it for $45 a cord, cut and stacked. And delivered. And delivered. And yeah. so he went through the whole, um, it costs five dollars to deliver it and whatever per hour to cut it and then to stack it and all these things whereas he's selling it for 25 as a round on his front porch essentially and uh, you know he is making a twenty dollar return whereas someone else is making an eight dollar return so I my my response to that was is I, I kind of feel like rather than saying no my my old business sense kind of thing was is that um, as a businessman you never say no, you just set a price that's so ridiculously high that it's like if, if somebody will actually pay that then then I'll be okay yeah, with if it. If you are gonna cut and stack and deliver it, maybe it needs to be eighty dollars a cord. Yeah, exactly, or or, or three hundred dollars a cord, you know, <laughs> and and it's like uh, um, and it's like well that's that's too high. I know. <laughs> yeah. uh, or you could come get it at my place for twenty five. Yeah, yeah, and so it's like um, you you make your own decision. Um, I'm not really set up to deliver it, and or 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 whatever, you know. Right. It's funny how he mentioned. Uh, he said, you know, most guys are trying to justify owning a, a, a truck to their wives, anyways. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so they want to come get it. <laughs> they want to come get it. Yeah, look, look at this. Yeah. All right. So um, next note. Uh, oh, the smaller the animal, the more dollars per acre, but the more effort per acre. Right. So, so as <laughs> as he says, he says you could get uh, <laughs> you could run you could run your electric fence a quarter of an inch off the ground and and run and and uh, uh, have herds of, of escargot and make ninety five grand a year. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, um, not that, not that he's doing that. It sounds, I don't get the impression he's doing that. No, I don't think he's uh, into escargot. I don't get the impression that, of yeah. that at all. Yeah. And so, um, uh, <laughs> but he did talk about okay, cattle. You know, it's the easiest. It's, mm -hmm. it's like there's like virtually no effort in cattle. Right. It's like hardly any time at all. The fence is a single strand of electric, and um, everything. Oh, by the way, single strand of electric. I gotta point out that that's, uh, when your land is really lumpy and hilly, like in the Rocky Mountains where I live, right. then um, single strand um, won't cut it in a mountainy area. Right, I, and I live on rolling hills, and I uh, pasture rotate my cattle, and 
we have tried one strand before, and you know, if you have a goalie or anything, yeah, they're, they're underneath it. I have this one heifer, and she just loves to get out. So yeah, it, it, it doesn't like, cut it. You, you could either go with, you could probably do single strand, but then you're like using four times more fence posts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah to, to match the train exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you know, run two. You know. So I've got to meet all my neighbors uh, as the uh, as the bulls got out. And That's definitely a good way to meet yeah, your neighbors. Yeah, and uh, so you know. Uh, w- one of them was. One of them came up and said, uh, uh, "Hey, are you are you missing some bulls by any chance? Because <laughs> um, we've got two bulls over at our house, and um, my wife's trying to keep them from eating her flowers, which are kind of expensive, and she's kind of been babying them, you know, forever. And uh, <laughs> Could you please remove your bull from my backyard." And then, and then it's like, okay, we've, we've, we've got the fence fixed. All right, mm-hmm. so single strand, we're back in business. And uh, the next day, there's a woman at the, at the <laughs> hey, a whole different person. Hey, um, I've got like this young heifer that I don't want bred just yet. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I've even, he, he did mention that they get trained to it and, and you don't even have to turn the um, wire on sometimes. And in my experience, that ends up in meeting your neighbors as well. So... I, I don't. I don't know if it's because he has such a strong herd mentality with that amount, but I have four head of cattle, and I have to keep the fence on all the time. So, so one of the things that that um, we need to improve on at our place, and it's like you know, my, my brother set it up real quick, and then and then he was gone, mm-hmm. and they're his bulls, and it's like okay, so now I'm going to go out, and uh, they're out, so I'm going to I'm going to improve the fence, and so I found a couple of problems with the fence, and I fixed it. And then one of the things I was looking at was like, oh, geez, look at all that grass touching the fence. Mm -hmm. And it's like so high up, but we've got enough grass here that's that tall already. And it's like I should probably scythe it, but I I currently don't own a scythe yet. I mean, I just moved in. I mean, it's living (laughs) in a cardboard boxes. And um, What's your favorite design, kind of side note, of the scythe? Do you like the American style or the straight ones? I don't have I don't have enough experience to to pick. I mean, I'd I'd love to try both. I mean, I'd love to try both, like... Wouldn't that be awesome to have like a master scythe person come oh, out yeah. and then we have like a little scythe workshop? Yeah, I, I bought one recently, well, like about two months ago, and that's what I do for my electric fences is I'll just get out there and scythe it. And, and um, there, I think I found one book on, on how to use it, you know what I mean? And I picked it up from Amazon real quick. I, I haven't cracked into it, but um, yeah, it, I've, I've often thought that if you can grab someone and do a workshop or a video or something, it's definitely a vacuum it, it, but but it it works really really well once you start to learn how to do it yeah yeah and uh, I, I used to own a scythe and um, along, I left it back on the, the 80 acre farm I'm not Spokane mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it was a straight handled uh, aluminum super light it was like crazy like really this is it this yeah. is all there is to it and um, yeah so I, I so much to do so much to do but but the, the, the thing is the second neighbor um, yeah, so we, we, and I know there's other, the fence is all, you know, now it's double strand and, um, we still need to kind of clear out some of those weeds, but, but I think the big thing is, is you've got to have nothing touching the wire. Right. And I know they try to mitigate that with having low impedance, uh, chargers oh, and yeah. stuff like that, or different ways of setting up your system so that they're, they have to touch both a positive and a negative. So you're never grounded or, or, and they use that in a lot of dry regions, but for the most part, you're right. Anything that's touching your line is going to end up drawing energy away from it right and then the thing is is that if you can if you can always have a freakishly hot pop oh yeah then then if you have a strand up and it doesn't have power to it then i think that they're like oh man i am not coming anywhere near that i know that i know that black white stuff the bigger the bite and um and joel was saying hell we just hooking you know we got to run the cattle way over there. We'll just run a, a line of nylon rope. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, amazing. They, and, and they don't come anywhere near it. They don't right. want to touch it. And, and, you know, I saw the size of his um, charger boxes, and it looked tiny. I don't know. I, even I was, the pig. I was so. surprised with that. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, but then again, we're going to get into this. There's a lot of things where I'm, I'm concerned about where he's yeah. going. But, you know, yeah. and I have, to, I have to say, I must be wrong because... I mean, now it's been eight years since I've had cattle, and right. and so um, uh, so I'm jumping back in, and it's like, um, and so we're gonna we'll talk about that yeah. when we get to each of these points. All right, um, let's see. Uh, oh, th- so he talked about the smallest animal is the more dollars per acre. So then he talked about how much money he makes per acre mm-hmm. um, with uh, hogs, 
and um, how much how easy they are to take care of, and then chickens, and how easy they are to take care of. You know, they take more time, but you make more money per acre. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, of course, the son is doing rabbits. We've got yeah. some fascinating things to say about rabbits a little later. Right. Um, but and then the, the rabbits were the best one. He even talked about um, guinea pigs, although I don't think that he's uh, he's raising any guinea pigs. And and I hope that everybody who's listening to this podcast is like not not getting a, a queasy stomach, but. Right. But uh, and, and cooey, cooey is, is what it's called when you eat it down, down in South, South America. America. Yeah, and, and I think his main focus with that part of his presentation was getting back to what we talked about before, where people want a roadmap or they don't know what to do. If you have a small plot of land, you can grow roses on it. It doesn't have to be cattle to to make uh, financial sense or to or to make you a little more financially uh, independent with your farming. And so there's always a way to make money, whether it's escargot or cattle. Right, right. And, and that basically the, the, the theme is going with the smaller it is, the more you make per acre, but the right. more work it is. So um, another thing he said is ponds. And, and he, he mentioned key line design several times. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he is um, uh, putting a lot of ponds in on his property. But his idea is um, pretty much your, your direct idea for ponds. He's going to put in lots of ponds to use for lots of different kinds of watering and irrigation and things like that, unlike um, what I believe most permaculture people do, which is you put in lots of ponds and then you just raise the humidity in the area and you have lots of edge. Right. And he even spoke about putting them high up and using uh, gravity feeding them. And which is what, something he's already done for years, right, right, right. you know, for, for decades. He's, he's had a couple of high up ponds, but just enough to be able to water the animals. Mm-hmm. Whereas now he's talking about putting in like like 20 ponds mm-hmm. and he's going to use a lot of them for different kinds because he, he irrigated one field once or twice or something like that just a little bit and it's like it was it drained their biggest pond right but they tripled the amount of stuff that grew on that field and he's like whoa <laughs> yeah and, and it's really interesting because we live in a, a dry land area where the only amount of water we have is what's stored in our ponds and you often think about how you're going to be running irrigation lines and this and that and some of the examples he showed were you know along the same lines that he always speaks about which is just get it done it doesn't have to be I don't. I don't want to advocate irrigation. Right. You know. Um, and I wish that he would. Have, I mean, his, he was going to originally see my presentation replacing irrigation with permaculture, but his plane was wonky and things went crazy, and then so he missed it. Right. And so he didn't see any of my presentations, which kind of makes me a little weepy. Um, I wanted him to see that. I thought it'd be cool. Um, but. Oh, well, um, at least I got to, to describe... And then your stuff would have magically showed up on his farm and it would have been him who invented it. No, that would be Seth. <laughs> That's <laughs> Seth. <laughs> this podcast will continue in part two. <laughs>